Welcome back to another episode of the Next Frontier podcast. I'm here with someone who's really interesting today. I met him through AFWorks. You might have heard of AFWorks because of my interview with Brian B. Mao. Uh, he was the former CEO and founder of AFWorks uh, a few podcast episodes ago. So I met I met Prescott Pauling at AFWorks' fusion event a few months ago, a few weeks ago. I'm not sure at this point. Uh, it might be different by the time this gets published as well. And I was struck by his in-depth knowledge of the defense innovation ecosystem and the innovation empowerment ecosystem. He has a really interesting background, taking him from from an academic career at university to the Marine Corps, then into startups, and then founding his own startup, and then into his family business, building a badass material science and manufacturing company for defense uh, and defense contractors in the defense ecosystem. And we're going to get into all of that. Uh, but first, I'd love for Prescott to take a second to introduce himself. So Prescott, I'd love to ask you, how do you define Prescott Pauling in 2020? So I think if I had to pick one word, I would say listener, but I think it's really a tiered approach, right? So the way that I, I act is I'm a listener. I'm very much someone that embraces user experience design and uh, design thinking principles. And then following that, I'm an inquisitor. I ask questions. I try to get people thinking. And then based on that, I'm an agitator. Uh, and there is a good analogy that was given to me by someone else recently. And they said, you know, I see you as an agitator. And the reason that I say that is I had a college professor at one point that brought a part, a plastic part in from a washing machine and set it on the desk and nobody knew what it was. And he said, this is an agitator. It moves in the opposite direction as everything is spinning and it gets people to stop for a moment and not necessarily go with the flow and reflect on what they're thinking and doing. And so I think that's ultimately where we, we all should strive to be. This is not just like a personal mission of mine. It just happens to kind of stem out of trying to evaluate other perspectives using the approach of I've got two ears and two eyes and one mouth. So how can I be, you know, observing more than I'm talking? And to that effect, then how can I also prompt people sort of like the Socratic method to ask questions that get them thinking? Amazing. And I'd love for you to maybe give give one definition of yourself that I've I've read about you in, in your different bios and whatnot online is of defense innovator and defense entrepreneur. Could you classify that, categorize that, and explain kind of what that means to you, especially this year as as you know things geopolitically might be heating heating up and investment and in innovation throughout the Department of Defense and and the military are heating up. Absolutely. And to some people, I realize that that is seen as an oxymoron when, for, for example, some people say military intelligence and they say, well, that's an oxymoron. So, you know, of course, if you don't have a nuanced understanding of the genre, then, uh, you know, at times people can think that, oh, well, this is hypocritical. But I think realistically, what it means at the end of the day is what are we doing to better uh, the lives of our warfighters and protect our nation? That's a really simple uh, thought process that we should all be going through if we're in defense innovation or in defense entrepreneurship. Uh, are we creating a solution that's going to make life better? The goal is not to complicate things, not add more red tape and bureaucracy, not add more hurdles. But if you look at a concept that was created by Lieutenant Colonel Boyd, um, to many in the military that might be listening to this, they might groan, but I'm going to hammer it home for those of you that are not familiar with it. It's a concept called the OODA loop, and it's observe, orient, decide, act. The first part starts with observation, getting back to my thought of being a listener. Uh, you have to see what your enemy is doing. You have to orient your resources and your posture. You have to make a decision, then you take action. And you do that as well as your enemy. And so from a national perspective, you know, we are trying to move through this OODA loop, whereas in the past, uh, China and other adversaries have been trying to hack us and trying to get in and interrupt our thought process so they can disrupt us and create more innovation 
and basically get prepared to fight and win uh, wars. And we don't want that to happen. So uh, we need to think as a nation, how do we act together, uh, literally together to work collaboratively and move that faster comparative to our enemies. And if we can do that, then we can win against our enemies, our adversaries in, in combat. And obviously the goal is peace and democracy. Those are things that we believe as Americans we want to stand up for. Uh, but at the end of the day, we also have to be aware that there are people that do mean us harm. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Not just ourselves, but how are we collaboratively working towards achieving this momentum? So we'll, we'll come back and we'll, we'll qualify your pretty exceptional qualifications for talking on this topic, both on a macro level through your work with the Defense Innovation Network and other programs that you've, that you've been building and have built, uh, and through on a micro level, your work with, with 300 Below, um, which again is a badass material science and manufacturing company for military equipment and, and other, other areas as well. We'll come back and we'll qualify that in, in, a, in a little bit. But first, I'd love to take a step back and if you could walk us through how you actually became a defense innovator. Um, maybe starting with right before university when you're thinking about, hey, what do I want to do um, in college? And then taking us through how you made the decision to, to get to the Marine Corps. And then we can, we can come back and I can ask some more, uh, some more questions to, to tease out kind of the case study of Prescott Pauling and, and how you arrived at where you are today. Sure. And I think the, the first step to um, you know, any change is recognizing that you have a problem, right? So <laughs> in terms of my own approach, I had to recognize before I got into defense innovation that there was a problem, that there was more R&D spend that was happening, um, that Congress was not approving for America, but there was more happening overseas. And I saw that as a, a great troubling trend. And so I thought there must be more that we can do. And the more I looked at innovation models, the more I realized collaboration is another factor. So if you don't have all the money, you can certainly work together with other people more effectively and that collaboration drives innovation. So I think that's something that it took me a while to learn. And jumping back to college, I studied entrepreneurship, which is about how do you collaborate? How do you use resources to build a solution for people in need? Um, I learned just a taste of design thinking there. There was a class taught by uh, folks from IDEA that was a, a cross and roll class at Franklin W. Owen College of Engineering. Um, that's a, it's a really great school. It's very small. I think there's maybe 250, 300 people, uh, but they're all on full ride scholarships. So it's take the top people from MIT, et cetera. And they made them offers to come in and study in a very academically rigorous environment. I was very fortunate to be cross enrolled and invited uh, as the first person from Babson College um, in, in entrepreneurship to come and participate in that design thinking process. So that got me interested of all the college coursework that I did. I think that was my, my top uh, you know, favorable place that I wanted to be at and uh, I was lucky to be there. And then separately, um, when I decided to go into the Marine Corps, then I looked at, you know, what are the other paths? And I thought, well, if I'm going to make a choice to, to do something, then I might as well do the hardest thing possible and, and go from there. Did you have that realization about, about kind of defense innovation and the need for better innovation processes prior to college? And did you go into college with the goal of, hey, I want to learn how to solve this problem? Or was that something you picked up as you were diving deeper into your studies of entrepreneurship, et cetera? Yeah. So we've had a family business ever since I was a little kid, right? So in terms of going in uh, to entrepreneurship, that was just more, I knew I wanted at some point to work with my dad in our family business. And um, so I thought that that would be a, a good path to learn the skills required in order to, to you know, work inside of a company that's a, a small entrepreneurial driven organization. So I thought it was more of a prerequisite uh, to be successful than it was any specific profound thought. Like the profound thoughts 
in terms of, hey, I want to help our warfighters, really came after uh, coming through the defense industry to have even a concept of what does that mean? You know, I had no idea what the military was when I was in college other than going through officer candidate school. And that's a very uh, myopic approach to knowing how does the entire um, fleet uh, force of, of Marines as well as the rest of the military service branches, how do we operate? And I think you have to kind of go in and do something in order to experience it enough to know it, right? Like, he, Yes, Babson's number one for entrepreneurship, but even looking back, like while it's a great school, I don't think you can just learn entrepreneurship out of a textbook. I think you have to go and try and ultimately fail a few times and you figure out what's right and then you don't do that. Um, so I think there's a process of being graceful in failure and that's an important learning process. I think the Marine Corps teaches you that as well. It's knowing that you, know, you don't have 100% solution the entire time. You have to come up with an 80% solution and make it up on the fly and then figure out how you're going to adapt in the moment and then go and achieve something as a result of that. And uh, what motivated you was the motivation for, for going to OCS and going into the Marine Corps. Um, was that, was that motivation that you did want to apply that, that those skills and what you knew, uh, to the family business or was it more, Hey, this is interesting. This is, I'm, I don't know what I want to do. I'm going to head into the military and we'll figure it out from there. What was uh, you know, I can't even re recollect looking back. I, I don't recall how I felt in going through that process. I know I had two cousins that were both Marines and they said, hey, you should look at going into the Marine Corps. And um, if you're going through college, then check out the officer program. And so at the time, I didn't really understand the difference. I knew enlisted and officer. and I didn't even know what that meant. And uh, I think that as I started down the path of showing up at the officer selection office for the first time, that became much more clear. Uh, because there's only so much that you can get out of a television commercial or a billboard on the side of a highway, right? You actually have to kind of take, take the first step in, in <laughs> discovering what that actually means. You know, it's not just, let me read the brochure. And so one, one of the, the things that I, I, was, I mentioned to you before we started that I wanted to understand a little bit more about your, your time in the Marine Corps, the specific, and you, you went on an amazing um, Amazing riff that I wish we would have had on, on record uh, before we started. I'd, I'd love to understand how your time in the Marine Corps and some of the skills that you learned. Um, you had mentioned the, the, the OODA loop and the observe, orient, decide, and act cycle. What, what were some of the skills and processes that you learned that really have helped you become a defense innovator to date right now? Um, I think working together, right? When you go through officer candidate school, the one thing that they're testing you on and that you're evaluating your peers on is how can you work together? How can you solve problems together? It's not just about you making decisions, but it's literally like if somebody has a good idea, are you willing to listen to them and incorporate that into a feedback loop so that you can make better decisions? Uh, that starts from the foundational element of training an officer in the Marine Corps. And I know that it also starts from the foundation of being in the submarine. When you were leaving the Marine Corps, um, did you know you wanted to go be an entrepreneur, start your own companies, work with tech um, before going to the family business? What were you thinking when you came out of the Marine Corps about how you would go about entering the technology space? Uh, so when I left the Marine Corps, it was a challenge to figure out, you know, what do you do with the skills and how do you pivot that into the civilian world? And so I had an opportunity to basically leverage my security clearance uh, which looking back, I really don't think that was much more than a warm body, but I got, you know, got accepted into this incredible opportunity, um, sort of out of sheer luck and serendipity. I met somebody at a conference at, uh, it's called AUSA, and that led into a job opportunity and an interview and an offer. And uh, from that, I moved back to Washington, D.C. 
and joined a group called um, Battelle. And uh, with with Battelle, they're ranked as one of the top R and D groups in in the world. Uh, they're the world's largest nonprofit R and D um, defense contractor, if you will. And they've got an incredible approach to how they manage innovation. Um, I happen to work with them, and um, in, in conjunction with my background with um, you know doing emergency preparedness coordination and chemical biological respiratory protection for police officers, um, that led to an opportunity uh, with Patel where I worked for a gentleman named Admiral Bias, and he was a prior chief oceanographer of the U.S. Navy. Where um, in that capacity, we worked on things like undersea robotics research and some other fascinating projects that I wish I could tell you about. Um, but we, we had some really cool opportunities where I learned a lot about innovation research. I was looking at ways uh, for Battelle to expand um, some of... See, I can't talk about that. Sorry. So basically, what Battelle taught me is looking at different innovation models and how do we take something that's here and move it elsewhere and monitor and measure that and then bring those... Uh, feedback points back into the organization. I think I can say that without breaking any NDAs here. One one thing that you might be able to talk about that might not be covered by NDA, and this isn't specific to Patel. Um, what what are some of the innovation models that you know, in addition to design thinking, that you've acquired along the way that that you um, that you have found you know super applicable? Could you tell us a little bit about those? Uh, can you repeat the question? When it comes to innovation models and and whether it be business model innovation or actually innovating technology or organizational kind of thinking uh, innovation, what are some of the innovation models that you've used along the way or, or that you gained in your experience you know, after the military that, you, that are some of your favorites? Let me talk about one of my favorite pieces of the Marine Corps from an on-base perspective. This has nothing to do with the total fleet uh, worldwide other than when you're stuck in garrison and you're on a base and you're in the United States, uh, there is a place called the auto hobby skills shop in the Marine Corps. And you can bring your vehicle in and there are SAE certified mechanics that are available to help you learn how to turn your own wrench. So if you don't have any experience in a particular vein, they'll point at something and say, you should check this out. You should do it this way. And I see that as a good analogy. It goes back to collaboration, right? It's how can I take this uncomfortable skill set that I, for example, I don't know much about car maintenance in this example, but if I just talk to this guy over here, I'll learn something and I can improve. And so I see that as a fundamental um, framework for how Defense Innovation Network has come to be in terms of giving people advice that may not know about certain topics, such as how do we clarify our message and give them advice in a way that's going to help them gain momentum so that they can go and do the things that they're really good at, that they're really technically savvy at, but they may not know how to communicate effectively to other people, right? So it's how do we create that environment where you can come in and if the rule of thumb is you should be spending 20% of your revenue on research and development slash innovation, you know, you, might, you might not have that team on staff, right? If you're a small business, if you're an entrepreneur working from a laptop, you don't have an R&D team. So how could you find a group that can help you accomplish some of the same thought processes? You go to something like an auto hobby skill shop. So that's essentially what we're trying to build for small business, right? It's you know looking back at the Marine Corps lessons. Those are things like that that I look back and I say, this is cool. You know, They provide the resources and I can't hire a mechanic myself personally, but I can go in and get access to one 
for a couple hours on the weekend. And, you know, yeah, there's eight, 10, 12 other vehicles in there, but he can bounce around between different vehicles and say, here's what you should tweak and this should be better. That's freaking awesome. So I've been really interested lately with how, with how things like makerspaces or, or even the university, they take really expensive capital equipment and they make it available to lots of, lots of individuals. They make a electron microscope that's $1.2 million and $60,000 a year to maintain. They take that, they make it available to a couple of hundred students, maybe a couple of thousand students every year. Um, and what's interesting is I haven't really explored or thought too much about the knowledge transfer component of that is when you have so many different people using a piece of equipment who are going through the similar processes, the exponential increases in, in, in learning you can achieve um, through processes like that. So that, that, that rings that bell for me. That's really interesting. So I guess let's, let's transition over to, uh, to the Defense Innovation Network a little bit more. Could you formally tell us what the mission of the Defense Innovation Network is? And then lots of specific questions there because it's very interesting work. Absolutely. So we started back in 2012 after I left Battelle. Um, I got the help from a gentleman named Dr. Mark Jerpo from Microsoft. And there were a number of companies in the DC area that wanted to reach defense executives, but they didn't know how. Um, they were companies like Uber when they were first starting up, the Black Town Cars, for example. And there was another men's clothing company called Alton Lane. And there was uh, other companies, for example, Glenn Fittich. A lot of military guys love drinking scotch, so they wanted to reach them as well. So we created a group in 2012 that was essentially an after-hours cocktail experiment. And we brought everybody in in secret with a first-name basis only uh, and flushed out a social network of true defense innovators. Some of the smartest people I've ever met were in that first meeting. And this meeting was a thing where you had three note cards and you had to show up at the door with the three note cards filled out, whether that was painted, drawn upon, or written down with notes on, didn't matter. But they all had to deal with the challenge facing your organization or the defense industry. And you had 90 seconds to present, so 30 seconds per card. And from that, you'd be placed into group of three. And of the three, two people would choose which of the uh, three challenges deserved to rise. And so from that, after about an hour and a half, we had four really great challenges that we spent the rest of the evening brainstorming after Glenn Fittich jumped in uh, with their global brand ambassador and gave us a private scotch tasting. So in order to show up to this event, we had a, a card with a code word and a dossier that was given to people. And uh, Uber would basically uh, say, hey, download our app. And nobody knew what Uber was. So imagine you're calling this black town car. You have no idea where it's from or what this app is. You're supposed to tell the driver a code word and you don't have any idea where you're going. So that was our user experience. Is people this, were what, what year getting, was this? This is 2012. Um, okay. So people are literally getting into black town cars without any ideas where they're going. And we drove them to the secret location where they then brainstormed solutions to defense problems. So that was a really cool event. Um, and that's how we got started was in-person events. And then when COVID hit, we pivoted and recognized a need. Uh, talking with the Air Force, we asked, hey, are you going to do a, uh, a webinar, a you know, summit uh, to make up for the fact that South by Southwest had canceled the big uh, event of the year for innovation. And they said, no. So I was like, well, I guess we'll do one then. So we started that up and that became the genesis for Defense Innovation Network's virtual summit. And as a result, uh, we've grown substantially. We have over, I think, 120 speakers at this point through the course of 2020 that have spoken on topics of defense innovation. And uh, after every webinar, we did an exit survey and asked people, what do you want? What's the biggest challenge with innovation for you? And the top two things that came up consistently were we want 
to have clarity in our messaging through story. And we also want to have a mastermind group where we can get together and brainstorm with like-minded entrepreneurs. So we created both of those. We have a storybrand.com uh, certified guide on our team now. And uh, separately, we also have... What, what, is, um, what is a storybrand.com certified guide? So they are, they are the experts in clarifying your messaging. So if you're this defense entrepreneur and you have a really technical, nuanced topic, right? And you got 20 PowerPoint slides and you got this thick technical white paper. Most people are going to fall asleep before they ever understand what you do. And so what we do is we help people bring it down into a paragraph, essentially, to help clarify messaging. So let me do that right now. I'll tell you exactly what our story brain brand script is for Defense Innovation Network. Uh, for Defense Innovation Network, we're an alliance of startups, small businesses, and innovators. And we know that people strive to be a next level thought leader. So in order to do that, they need more funding to grow their innovation activity. And that needs to be paired up with the latest advice to improve contract and grant capture. The problem is that applying for funding is overwhelming and it's difficult to meet the right decision maker, which makes them feel frustrated and overworked. So we believe that inspiring change shouldn't be so difficult. It should be easy to find the funding that you're, you need to be successful. And we understand what it's like to write successful applications seeking an optimal funding vehicle because we've endured the process ourselves, which is also why we've launched the industry's first peer-supported virtual brainstorming group to help our peers, leaders like you, secure millions of dollars in contracts and grant funding while winning innovation accolades and financial support from all branches of the U.S. military. So that's essentially our brand script. It tells you exactly what we do, what problems we are aiming to solve. Great copy. And then, thanks. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the power of it. You know, it's short. It's easy to understand, easy to digest. You're like, oh, I get what they're doing. And then that second piece, again, is the, is the brainstorming groups. So once a month, we get together with other leaders, CEOs, project managers, et cetera. Anybody that's doing that um, contract uh, query, basically, they're looking to do capture on contract revenue for research and development. So we can help them with the best practices as to what they should be applying for, what they should be doing. We just want to be a resource where people can figure out the process. And so people ask me, well, why are you doing this for free? You know, you don't get paid a salary from this organization. It's like, yeah, well, it's all about kind of this, uh, you know, if you want to go and say it's karmic, yeah, I guess you could say that. But it's also about, it's about sharing resources and helping each other. It's back to the auto hobby skills shop concept, right? So if we're pooling a bunch of resources from small businesses and we can come up with a similar thing, it's like, hey, come check out our shop and bring your car and get it worked on and we'll give you the tweaks that you need to do this for your business. And so that's essentially what we are. We're an innovation auto hobby skill shop, if you will. <laughs> and uh, you know, if, if somebody wants to think like, hey, my goal should be to get uh, 15 or 20% of my revenue put towards R&D, that's a challenge for a small business, especially if you're in manufacturing uh, where you have thin margins. So a government contract can really boost that for people, right? That can give you innovation dollars that you didn't have before to go and advance your technology, pivoting it, of course, for the warfighter and to bring it back to help our defense industry. But I think most importantly is that commercialization aspect, right? Because companies aren't doing it to be generous. Companies need to make money. And that's the whole point of why you have an organization in the first place. They make money so you can pay people to work there and they can support for their families and you know everything else that comes out of that. It's, that is a great approach, of course. But at the end of the day, we also want to have a mission. We want to know that our products are being used in a way that is meaningful. It's making meaningful impact to change people's lives, and especially improve the lives for our warfighters. So I think that's where defense innovation is really uh, useful and it's really necessary for our nation to have a competitive advantage on this global landscape. Um, and I'm excited to, to create an opportunity for small business to have a place where they can turn 
and get that advice without having to pay for a full-time employee to, to do so. Well, that's, that's really awesome. So let's, let's recap and maybe break it down. So there's a mastermind. Uh, do you do consulting services as well for these companies? Is it, is it, is it a, a consulting initiative? Are you helping people actually like fill out the applications or is it more, Hey, we're going to have a webinar, learn what you want and then passively go and implement it. We're going to have a mastermind take away what you can and go passively implement it. Or do you have a consulting team as well? Yeah. So we, in a way you, you could say yes, but our goal is to maintain a neutral approach, right? So we can recommend if somebody needs more one-on-one time, we can make recommendations to a network of consultants that have proven to not be usurious in charging funds and things like that. So there's a lot of consultants out there that you'll find in Capitol Hill and elsewhere. And they'll say, oh, we need a $10,000, $20,000 retainer, and we might get you some momentum. And we don't believe that that's fair to small business. So we partner with people, including retired generals that charge on an hourly rate. They're very effective at what they do. They generally bill in five-minute increments. And when you find people that charge fairly like that, then it's, it's a good exchange for both the consultant and the small business. They don't get screwed. Um, pardon my French on that one, but you know, that's really the reality. There's a lot of people that don't understand the process and they get taken advantage of. So we want to be a resource where they're not getting taken advantage of, where we're putting out guides, for example, on here's the exact steps that you need to do on the government paperwork to fill it out and get accepted to do business with the government. We give that away for free, right? And that's what I would call the opt-in, the lead gen content. So people see that we're providing massive value up front and they realize that we are doing good things as a network. Uh, and then based on that, they might want to join. And if they do, we operate in three cycles. We, we mirror ourselves and our impact to the Cyber cycle. Cyber stands for Small Business Innovation Research. And what we do is we try to open our membership just after what's called pre-release, where you can see all the topics being offered by the government for funding. And if you say, hey, I've got a solution that might fit that, then come join us and we'll help give you that brainstorming, that you know, auto hobby skill shop approach to innovation, where you can join our network and get advice from other people just like you and knowing what you need to do to be successful. So I think that then opens up and then we close that right as um, like right before the Cyber announcement is closing so that we can focus on our members and help them with making sure that their projects are going to be successful it, to the best of our ability. We can't guarantee anything, but to the best of our ability, we want to give them the tips, tweaks, uh, tools that they need in order to be successful. So we open three times a year for membership. We also have virtual summits three times a year, and those virtual summits occur right before the Cyber cycle opens up so that we're giving massive value for free. Anybody can show up live and get access to knowledge that's going to help them improve their innovation thought processes for their organization. And we hope translate into some impact for our warfighters. So how long have you been doing this? Is this a recent, recent post COVID, Hey, we need to find a virtual way to interact and, and communicate with, with, uh, with our members or when, when did you move from that initial 2012 in-person mastermind creepy dinner where you were telling five-star generals to get in cars uh, that are unmarked and not know where they're going um, to, to this virtual format. Uh, is this the first cycle? Well, so when you look back to 2012, it wasn't just generals, by the way, we, we preferred to work with people that weren't generals actually, that were the sort of the middle to middle senior level managers. So the Lieutenant colonels, colonels, even the captains and the lieutenants. So wide spectrum, as well as anybody that was enlisted that we could find through our network that was innovative and willing to, to show up and, and play in the, in the playground. Now that's just on the military side. No, I just, I thought it was that, funny. I thought the picture of a five-star general getting into an unmarked yeah, no, totally. Uber but in 2012 was really funny. <laughs> my point though is, um, is that we also took out the power from the room. 
So when you showed up, you had to be on a first name only basis. It wasn't about rank or power structure. And so then it was just John or Sarah or whatever. That's all you knew. But you knew that they were pre-screened right in advance. So these are the smartest people in the room. And that's been much harder to do virtually um, because now virtually you log into Zoom, it shows your full name. It's just, you know, you know exactly who the person is generally. Um, and it's harder to create that environment where there's a mystique and things that can be done in live in-person events. So while I miss that approach, I also think that it's important to look and see, um, you know, what can be done virtually. And definitely in terms of the pivot, the pivot happened with COVID, but the pivot happened not just for us. It happened with pretty much every defense organization. Um, in the defense industry, teleworking was seen as sort of this negative thing that if you're a government employee, uh, you better be pregnant if you're going to go telework. That was pretty much the thought process. Like people just didn't take it seriously. So when COVID finally hit and telework became an option, then people realized that this is a real way to work. This is a real approach to doing business and we should embrace it. And so that is what became the genesis of our projects, right? Um, in terms of how we pivoted. And then it's just figuring out once we create this virtual space, how do we, how do we make it impactful? And so that goes back to the question of that auto hobby skill shop. You know, you got to find a time when everybody can show up and chip in their knowledge. And from that, they get advice from the mechanic on what tweaks they need to make to make their engine and their vehicle run better. The vehicle in this case being their organization. Got it. So that's Defense Innovation Network. So continuing our recap of resources, so we covered the mastermind, we covered the kind of consultant network that you're building, we covered the SBIR support process that, that you're implementing, which I think is really interesting that you align it with the SBIR process. Um, what about the virtual events? So tell us a little bit more about those. What are they focused on? What can people learn? Where can people go to, to plug in and, and learn the content that, you'll, that you all are providing? So that website is summit.defenseinnovation.net, and that's linked from our website, defenseinnovation.net. So if anybody's in the government or they're active duty military, they can go on with a .mil or a .gov account onto defenseinnovation.net and get access right now to our site, where they can then go and perform video searches from all the Summit content historically. So what's cool about us versus YouTube is you can type in a keyword. And then based on that keyword, it will pull up the exact moment in conversation where somebody mentions that topic of interest, right? So how do you, sorry, how, how do you do that? That's freaking awesome. So that's a machine learning transcription tool that we use and we're partnered with the developers on it so that we can ingest the content. And then from that, we put that content through the site and then people can learn and you know, those can become actionable insights. Because really the, the thought is back to, you know, great, we did this in-person event in 2012 took us several hours to get there to get these actual insights out. And while the value of that room could have been a quarter million dollars or more uh, with just the raw time that people had put in uh, and some of the you know, high earners that were in that room, um, it, you know, it's like, how do you create that experience virtually? And what's cool about that is now if we get enough of those actual insights and we can transcribe that and make it searchable, now anybody can, can have access. And it's much more scalable than just you know, 70 people in a room. Now you can have tens of thousands of people searching for similar knowledge insights and make them actionable. It's again, back to speeding up that OOLU. How do we make that happen? So that's collaboration, but collaboration also means back to the first point that you asked me in this conversation, you have to be a listener. You have to be willing to inquire about what's going on around you. So if you don't take the first step to type in the search term, you'll never learn because you're just stuck in your lane and you're just focused on what you're doing. So people need to think like if 
if a lot of the top organizations, such as Intel that does semiconductors, they're spending 20% of their revenue on research and development, on innovation, right? Shouldn't that also mean you consider the same impact for your time? Are you spending one out of five hours focused on learning, improving, listening to your customer, listening to your audience, listening to technological trends so you can make a better pivot and choose a better path? Most people don't do that. They just focus on only what they're working on and that's it. So if you could think both in terms of time and resources, how do we do better? That requires you to look elsewhere and listen to other people. And so if we can provide the resources to do that through our organization, again, I'll shop like, that's great. I know, I know that people can take advantage of them if they use the tools, if they show up and use them. So that's the big if, right? We have to make it engaging and easy for people to use in order for this to happen. And everybody needs to have that mission inside themselves. Hey, I need to seek at least one out of my five hours to figure out what else is going on around me so that I can make better decisions and inspire more people to create change. So that so you had mentioned at the beginning of, of that section, you mentioned that that dot mil and dot gov email addresses, government employees, uh, military personnel could access this content. Is it available to citizens and to 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 private sector entrepreneurs and innovators, industrialists, et cetera? It is, but only to US citizens and we only open three times a year. So you got it. So that's needs- part of the membership. Exactly. So if they show up at the website and we're not open, um, that just means that we're focused exclusively on helping our members succeed, right? And I still have a full-time job working with my dad in our family business, and we have Air Force research and development contracts. So at the same time, like I try to manage those to the best of my ability, and that's my priority. Defense Innovation Network is not my priority. The priority is when I can work with our members outside of my normal business hours, just like they have full-time jobs also, then we work together collaboratively to grow our innovation impact. So it's sort of like we all agree that we're gonna make it a priority at certain times. It's not all the time, but when we do, it's really powerful. And so that's the same with membership, right? It's like, we're not always open, but when we are, we do it for a week, we open the doors, we let people in. And this year it's gonna happen September 23rd, so people can come in at that point. And then once they're in, we lock the doors and we focus on serving them. And I think that's a really good way to approach it because otherwise you get organizations that are constantly focusing on marketing and promotion and all these other things. It's very distracting. Um, There's a lot of industry organizations that are open all the time, Um, but that just causes a disconnect in my opinion and messaging impact. Working with the DOD, I noticed that you said that, that the events only open to us citizens. I imagine that's because you have sensitive content. You're working closely with the DOD. So I'd love to learn about the process of not necessarily innovating and building new technology for the DOD, but what you're doing if you are working with the DOD of innovating how the of helping the DOD innovate how they innovate um, with a more direct relationship. How to how you establish that relationship with them and, and what that looks like now. Okay, understood. In terms of the the approach that we have to just working with U.S. citizens. Um, We're excited to open up uh, opportunities for other companies that are foreign that are helping our defense industry for the U.S. We believe in NATO. We believe in supporting our allies, no question about it. But in terms of the initial round of how we're interacting with companies, it's just focused on U.S. citizens. And a lot of that reason is that many of the defense companies that are smaller businesses are concerned that their technology could be taken and pushed overseas, et cetera. So by keeping it in a U.S.-centric ecosystem, there's just really a higher level of comfort for a lot of the companies that are part of our network. So we check that through a third-party organization called PassPace, uh, PassBase, P-A-S-S-B-A-S-E. And basically, you can use a cell phone or a webcam. You hold up your passport. It takes photos of you at different intervals, close and far from the camera. And then based on that, verifies that you're a U.S. citizen. 
Roger, and and to get to the second part of that question, is the relationship with the DoD formal, or or you are implementing this because just to clarify, you're implementing this because it serves your members better. Correct. So in terms of our relationship with the Department of Defense, this is not a formally established relationship. This is born out of industry need. Um, again, we run a small family business. We have defense contracts. So for our family business, we have a strong interest in collaborating with other businesses that are, again, small business that understand the nuances of the small business innovation research, the CIBR R&D process. And so we seek insights and advice and feedback from other peer organizations. It's participating in a collaborative ecosystem. We have joined other bigger organizations for the defense industry, um, but we've been disappointed because they've generated zero return on investment. And what that's really done is caused distraction. And we've realized that those organizations have only been focusing primarily on serving the big primes, if you will, the largest defense contractors. And with that focus, uh, it pulls away from small business. So our organization, Defense Innovation Network, is exclusively focused on small to medium-sized enterprise, but specifically small businesses that have the ability to apply for DOD funding. Um, and then from that, we're trying to advise and ensure that they have a better chance of success. And that's our peer network. So if we're supporting them, they're supporting us. Everybody wins. And that's our priority at the end of the day. Last question on Defense Innovation Network. For the young entrepreneur who is building his first company who might not have a prototype yet, is at the first stages of like, how do I scrap together enough cash to go build something? I have an idea for for, for an SBIR to help the DOD. Um, are they able to apply to the Defense Innovation Network? What are kind of the the requirements, prerequisites for getting for, for becoming a member and having your your, your application accepted? Absolutely. So um, right now, if somebody needed that advice, they could show up live to our summit series, which is free to attend live, and they can get those insights from leaders in the cyber thought space. So uh, Stacy Swider is part of our group for Defense Innovation Network. She also happens to be the director of the Cyber Center of Excellence at University of Massachusetts Lowell, and that's arguably the top um, research institute in the nation for understanding contract capture for cyber contracts and just providing that advice and that type of thing. Stacy works for the state of Massachusetts, right? So any taxpayers uh, that are corporations, companies incorporated in the state of Massachusetts can go there and get free advice during their working hours for UMass Lowell. Outside of that, Stacy after 5 p.m. is allowed to work with Defense Innovation Network. So if you're not in Massachusetts or you want to meet with her virtually, then you can engage her. But that's also a paid consultation. So we recommend her as a consultant, being of her stature and her background, uh, to someone that can help with that process. She also comes and talks to our members, which doesn't cost them anything extra other than they just need to be a member. So in terms of the membership process, um, we just need to make sure that they're defense accredited business. We have a guide to help them obtain that. And if they have a cage code, then they can join Defense Innovation Network. So there is an application process there. Um, the cost is typically $97 a month, uh, but we will be running a promo. I guess if your listeners are listening, then uh, feel free to send them our way. We're going to be cutting that substantially down for this session. Um, so for small businesses hurt by COVID, the cost to join on an annual basis will be $497. And if they join this year, then that will lock in for life. So they will never have to pay that $97 a month rate ever again in the future. And and that four ninety seven that gets you access to all of the features we described earlier, um, mastermind, membership, content, um, coaching, consulting, advice, etc. So not the direct co coaching consulting, the, the, right? They can the definitely listing, join the, the mastermind. Of, absolutely. Yep. 
any group features, that's what we're going to provide as benefits to our members. And there's a lot more unannounced bonuses that will happen around September 23rd timeframe to sweeten the pot for people that are affected by COVID-19. Our goal is to help them grow, right? Like mm-hmm. I want them to be as successful as our family business. And I really want to provide people with resources that they can use to improve not just their contract capture, but also their awareness and their impact. So by awareness, how do they, again, clarify their messaging and improve their marketing so that they can get the visibility they deserve so that their technology will be found and purchased? And then separately, their impact. How do we help them uh, with the innovation process so they can create more impactful product and service solutions? Amazing. So that's a great point to transition over to the family business. Um, could you tell us a little bit about 300 Below, what you what your role is at 300 Below, and how you came to be working at 300 Below? Absolutely. So my dad started 300 Below back in 1992, and he later merged with his mentor around the 2000 timeframe. Uh, that mentor had been in business since 1966. My parents met in flight school in Prescott, Arizona. That's how I got my name. And they're flying planes, and I was their uh, their child from you know, from Arizona and I was born in Tucson. Uh, so when we moved back to Illinois, which is where my mom is from, then uh, my dad was flying planes at the time. He was flying medevac for heart and lung transplant. And from that experience, he read a magazine article that said sometimes twist drills will last longer when they're frozen. And he thought as an engineer, why not all the time? So he created the world's first computer controlled cryogenic processor. And then from that um, when his mentor was sunsetting, they merged the businesses. So we became the world's largest and oldest commercial cryogenic processing company. And while we say world's largest and oldest, it's a small niche, right? Like the, we're not like Caterpillar and we have machinery all around, um, you know, with, with giant tractors, but we do have machinery all over the world that is our technology. So we do have global impact on a smaller scale, uh, operation, like a smaller footprint, I guess I should say. Um, the size of our typical processor is probably the size of maybe five home refrigerators put together side by side. And we put items into the the freezers, if you will, and we release liquid nitrogen right above its boiling point. So it's in a gaseous state. And over a a long period of time, what that does is it compresses and expands the molecular structure. So there's uniformity. And what that ultimately creates is about 300% longer life for 20% cost of the item. So when we look at applications in the defense industry, like the Air Force, we started with them because it was really easy to work with the Air Force and their contracting vehicles. Um, of course, I would have pride as a Marine Corps officer that I want to do something with the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps doesn't have a super program. The Navy does. They're a department of the Navy. So you have to look at what are the contracting vehicles, and the Air Force was the easiest to work with. So I put my pride aside and looked for the opportunity and the ways to better serve our warfighters. And as a result, we created projects where we're improving the wear resistance for firearms, for brake rotors that are on vehicles, and also now for tooling. And so those are projects where we want to test. We want to see, you know, what is the military using? What is the metallurgy of these items? You know, there's tons of at-risk metals, but how do we identify what the metal is? And that, even that is an innovation thought process in, in and of itself, because a lot of the Air Force bases are finding that this stuff is in paper, that these are with engineers. And some of the engineers that created these specifications maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago are dead now or they're retired. So can you, so can you, it's can a you back that up for us? So, so when you say it's all on paper, so give us an example. So there's an F, there's an F-15 sitting in a hangar somewhere and they don't know what the, what the, the metal is that's in the, in the, the wheel axis, for example. Is that, is that a good analogy? 
Uh, maybe not on a newer aircraft, but on certain parts. Let's let's talk about like a diesel generator, right? So let's say you have an old diesel generator that was manufactured in 1960 or 70 that's still running and still maintained by the military. Um, it's a low-tech item, uh, which is great if you have an EMP shockwave, right? And it destroys all your new electronics. You still have things that can run. So old parts aren't bad if they're well-maintained. But the problem is if something breaks, how do you replace it, right? So even now, like with the Air Force, they're looking at additive manufacturing. How do you 3D print metals? Mm -hmm. And we're looking at ways, if they're gonna 3D print metals, how do we improve them so that the strength and stability of these 3D printed structures, imagine at the microscopic level, you know, you're printing something, layering it up, mm -hmm. there's gonna be pores, voids, crack mm -hmm. areas, things like that. So if we can compress that molecular structure in a freezing process through our technology and then expand it uniformly to provide potentially the equivalent strength as to what the current steel part has, that's transformative because now you don't have to wait four weeks for somebody from uh, Nebraska to send you a part over in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever it is. It might be months, right? So you can print it on demand at the edge where the battle is happening. You can print the replacement part for something that's broken. That's transformative for the Air Force. But also looking at legacy parts back to that 1960s, 70s generator, um, you know, so if a part breaks, we may not even know what the metal is that it was made from. So then do you have an extra part, a spare part that you can just send off to some lab for analysis? And how many times are you going to do that? Well, most of those engineering drawings are done on paper. They're stuffed in a drawer in a folder or something somewhere. And if it's a classified project, well, good luck. Now you got to go find the archives where this file is, pull it out and do a bunch of research. You got to physically walk over to a building to get that done. Not everything is digitized. And it's sometimes it's a good thing that it's not. It can't be hacked if it's not digital, right? So there are lots of things that go into the engineering aspect, which when you're not an engin engineer and you're an officer that's trying to promote innovation on your military base, it makes it very difficult for you because now you've got to wait days, weeks, months, whatever, for competent engineering determinations or feedback even just to find out like what's the part made from, right? So at every base, um, there's typically somebody that gets appointed as like the technology insertion manager or as the ombudsman or something like that, where uh, that point of contact is typically responsible for grabbing cool technology that they see, especially through the AFWorks ecosystem, which is how we met. And they see something they're like, wow, I would love to put that into my base. The problem with that is that that's usually one person. So if that one person wants to get answers, they don't have a team working for them, right? There needs to be an auto hobby skill shop as much for a military base in the context of innovation uh, for you know many people to be giving advice versus just one mechanic. And so that's the first barrier to entry with good technology. But once we find that person, now we got to think about how do we get them the information? Well, we as small business, we really can't do that. We have to rely on the other people at that base. So now they have to do the, the work of sleuthing that out. Now, imagine if you've got 40 of those projects, how do you even manage that? Where's the bandwidth, right? Like your daily hours are constantly stuck in trying to get new information so you can make decisions. So that's another thing that the Air Force and other military branches are trying to address is what's the typical customer journey like, right? When they look at a success path, what's it like for a small business to try and inject their technology? Where are the hurdles? Where are the barriers? And how can we alleviate those? So then once they understand that, then the management, the officers, if you will, can ask the follow-on questions. Now that we know that there's a problem with the technology getting into the base, now how do we address the point that there's silos of information? Certain engineers that might not want change because they're ready to retire or they just don't like change or whatever that is, there might be a cultural problem. They may not be willing to share information to the point that they're ex intentionally delaying the transmission or sharing of information. So that's another 
problem that has to be addressed. So these are all things that I think stack as why it's frustrating for business to do anything related to defense innovation and why it doesn't just happen in a day or a week. It takes months and that's just for the R&D piece. It typically takes years for somebody to get on contract. And the rule of thumb that I've heard is that it takes you five years and $5 million if you want to get on contract with the military. That's a bad rule of thumb and everybody's trying to work to change that. But if that's the standard rule of thumb for small business and your small business is only doing a million dollars of revenue every year and they've only got you know 10% or less in terms of profits, well, it's going to take them a while to build up a pot of $5 million to go accomplish the innovation and do it in a five-year period. It's a lot longer than five years, I can tell you that. So when you bring into the government uh, funding, uh, you bring that funding to bear for that small business, it's truly transformative. It allows small businesses to take their great ideas, their great technology, and actually have the resources to go and transform them and fit them for the warfighter. And that's what we need more of. Is that what you've been doing at 300 Below? So was 300 Below before you you came on board, um, were they were they a military supplier, military contractor, or or was your role really figure out how to hack this this kind of weird innovation paradigm that's happening in the military? Yeah, so in the past, 300 Below has absolutely treated parts for NASA and all branches of the military. And we've had interesting projects come through that we didn't always know what they were. Uh, we didn't always know how they were funded. Um, sometimes that would be an interesting part of that process. So unfortunately, I can't talk about any of those things, of course, but what I will say is uh, AFWorks and the Air Force research funding uh, wasn't the first time 300 Below had dealt with the military and with the federal government. That said, it was the first time that we actually got substantial research and development funding to do testing to prove what we already knew um, because we already knew we had a commercialized process that worked. But the challenge with that is that when you have this commercialized process that works without any laboratory studies or PhD level research, it makes it hard when you're trying to sell to a program manager who happens to be an engineer from one of the top engineering schools in the nation working for the government. They're, they have a heavy poo-poo factor, as I would call it. They like to poo-poo your ideas and say, oh, well, I don't know. Uh, my, it's the Eeyore effect. Oh, I don't know. Might not work here. And so when you have somebody that has that mentality, and you don't have the data to back it up. It makes it very difficult for you to engage in a sales cycle. So the other piece of that is that small business innovation research, CIBR contracts, give you a competitive advantage. They give you a leg up in the contracting process. And we're still hopeful to experience that, right? Because we haven't leveraged that fully. We're in phase two out of three. So let me break that down for your listeners. The traditional yeah, CIBR process, the government knows what they want, and they put that out. Uh, three times a year. And they say, this is what we want. Please build it for us. That's the traditional SBI or SIBR. And with that traditional process, the government says up front, you're going to do this research project. You're going to do generally like a market research or uh, some sort of proposal that outlines what you might do if we give you prototype money. Prototype money happens in phase two. So typically that first phase is, let's call it $150,000, $250,000. I think think typically it's no more than one hundred and fifty. dollars uh, that's pivoted with AFWorks, it's now 50000 So it's, it's less money, but it's a shorter time period. So what might have taken six or eight or whatever months before, AFWorks is doing it typically in 90 days. And they give you a little bit less money. But then you can use it instead of doing this cursory research and uh, outlining your, um, your prototype that you might build or that the, the market would bear uh, in an AFWorks model or a SoftWorks model for Special Operations Forces. Uh, they have recognized that rather than the government tell you what we need, we don't always know what we need. So why don't you tell us what we should buy? And so in that AFWorks or SoftWorks process in phase one, you're saying, look, we've already got this commercialized proven solution in our market. It already works. 
And if you give us money, then we'll help you pivot it into the military application. So it's a different path. Traditional cyber, it's never been built before. And you're saying, we are the experts in this subject matter, but we've never done this thing before. Give us money and we'll build you this prototype that fits your defense need. You see the nuance there? So both yeah. of those options, whether it's traditional or it's this new AFWorks, SoftWorks model, um, both of them lead to phase three. Phase three is a really cool mechanism for small business, which is non-competitive, sole source procurement. That means for our business in the past, if we had to go out, we might have to bid on work against other firms. There's, a lot of, there's not a lot of people that do what 300 Below does. So we're fortunate in that way. Most of the times our work had already been written in on engineering diagrams because there were other smarter defense contractors that already tested our process in the past. They did their own internal research and analysis to prove that we were making things last longer and perform better. So then they would write it on the specification for the part that might've been shipped to NASA or the DOD, right? And so in this case though, if you're a small business and you don't have the luxury of having those engineering contacts write you in on contracts, then you have to either go compete or you have to use a SIBR so you can avoid the competition process and the government buys directly from you. And that's the cool part is the competition really happens in the SIBR selection, right? In phase one, the government's evaluating, let's say 1400 submissions in the recent round. And from that, they might choose, uh, in ours with AFWorks Challenge Day, I think they chose 92, something like that. And we were one of those companies, right? So out of 1400, we made it down to like the final top 90, which is great for our process to be applied for structural buildings, for aircrafts, for, uh, for corrosion, for whatever that is that the Air Force wants to use, and rebuilding Tyndall Air Force Base. And separately, we're also invited to the Air Force Advanced Manufacturing Olympics. So from the AMO, uh, there is a materials hurdles challenge. And when you look at 316 stainless, the w most widely used material inside the United States Air Force, our, uh, our research had un uncovered, uh, when we looked it up, that 316 that's being 3D printed we're improving the strength potentially 30%. So we're, we're still needing to go through and finalize our testing in terms of the Air Force con context. And I can't disclose that publicly, obviously. But from a private sector perspective, we can talk about it. And I think that's pretty cool because now we made it into the top, I think it's top 10 teams uh, for materials hurdle out of, I don't know how many submissions, there's a global competition for people to get in. And now we're in the top running to improve at-risk metals especially in the context of additive or 3D printing, uh, which is the next sort of genesis for how we're going to make parts overseas. So 300 Below is very excited about that. And I think that companies should be excited about these types of processes when they understand the nuances of how can they get direct procurement and avoid all the red tape and the you know, mounds of paperwork. Cyber enables that. It's a lot less paperwork. It's a lot faster process. And back to Defense Innovation Network, that's also what we want to show people is that it's, it's a really... Um, a fair evaluation for your business. If there's a warfighter need, then you can get money to go and build your product or solution better. And you'll end up with a better path for commercialization too. Because once you use that and you build a better mousetrap, so to speak, mm -hmm. now after the military, you can go bring that back in the private sector and sell more of whatever you're doing. Maybe you have a competitive advantage against your competition once you come out of some process like this. Definitely. I mean, I, I, learning that that you get a 30% bump in strength for, for 3D printed uh, 316 steel. That's, that's incredible. I've, uh, you know, as a materials engineer, my mind's pretty blown, but we'll save that for a different type of podcast. This is more about innovation than, uh, yeah, well, and, and also 316 materials engineering. Yeah. 316 is like our weakest performer for traditional cryogenic processing. We're not excited about 316. So when we see those results, we're really excited about like 416, right? And there's other variants that could be much better for the AMO. 
the advanced manufacturing Olympics, it wasn't stainless. It was about aluminum. So now we're testing different variants of aluminum in partnership with the University of California, Irvine. We've got an aluminum cerium structure that will be very fascinating to see how that performs once they do the evaluations. So I guess I'll ask for for not just the material science nerds, but for the the entrepreneurs who are actually building things, um, if they want to access these processes that 300 Below offers to enhance their performance of their of their hardware, how do they go about doing that? Well, the benefit of us being a super company that came in through the commercialization path that I mentioned, the the AppWorks softworks type of a path, we've got multiple AppWorks sibers, which means that we're already commercialized and proven. Like I said, we've been in business since 1966. Um, so with that, if somebody wants to treat parts with 300 Below, they can go to our website, 300 Below, like the numbers, 300 Below, like underneath B-E-L-O-W.com. And from that, just click on the contact page, tell us what you got. And our process is very inexpensive. For uh, a minimum run rate of $100, you can get a box of parts treated. So it really just depends on the weight of the parts and how much space they take up. But it's affordable, right? 100 bucks, anybody can do it and test parts out, in my opinion. Um, so we try to also make it easy for other small businesses that have cool ideas in manufacturing technology, material science, that they can have access to our technology to improve the parts and structures that they are also working on. We love partnership. Partnership is not a bad thing for 300 Below. Um, partnership is one of our top priorities. So if there are companies that have great technology and they want to see how does it perform in partnership with us, we would love to work with them. And it's possible we could help them get into contracts with the government as a result. So pivot, pivoting the conversation a little bit away from defense innovation and towards building a, a material science and manufacturing company uh, as an entrepreneur, as an industrialist. So you stepped in after the company was started and you started supporting your dad. Um, could you share some light on some of the, the growth challenges you've had with building a manufacturing company, um, whether it be capital expenditures, marketing, whatever, whatever comes to mind is, hey, here are the challenges that I've helped tackle at, while building up this really cool at the edge of technology manufacturing company. So personally, I'd rather stay away from that discussion um, and I would leave okay. that to my dad as to what he's comfortable with. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, I, from my perspective, I think that discussing growth uh, for our company, for me, I get excited about the defense industry aspect, but that's because I know the defense industry that's different than my dad. He's an aerospace engineer, right? So he gets excited, not just about the defense industry, but other veins of our technology that he understands much better than I ever would. So I think in terms of growth, um, it goes back to listening, inquiring, agitating. It's figuring out you know, what other markets can we serve. And we've got a whole wall in our office where we've got it broken down into different segments. Uh, there's seven core industries that we serve across manufacturing, motorsports, firearms, and a number of other ones that we, we do a lot of revenue in. And it's great to have those niche markets that we serve. But it's also important when you have a business to try and focus on some core areas. And our other main focus recently has been with brake rotors. Uh, we've helped a lot of fleet vehicles. So anybody that has a fleet uh, of typically 100 or more vehicles, um, sometimes even 50 or more, we can really help. Uh, for Aramark, as an example, the uniform delivery company, Every 100 trucks that they had, we saved them $373,000 over seven years by switching to our processed, our cryogenically treated parts, right? It's um, basically a metal pie plate that's on a car and it clamps down and that's how you slow down the vehicle for people that don't know what a brake rotor is. Uh, those brake rotors wear out and they wear out as probably the most frequently changed item on a vehicle as to why you put a vehicle in the shop. 
Uh, that requires extensive maintenance when you have to do a brake job. And so if you've got an ambulance or a taxi or a delivery vehicle or whatever else, and it takes um, you know, a lot of beating on city roads, not just highways, stop, go, stop, go, then your vehicle is going to end up experiencing downtime. Your whole fleet will experience downtime. So we help reduce the downtime for fleets so they can stay on the road longer where they belong. And as a result, they save a ton of money, but they're also saving the man hours. They're more efficient. So operational excellence is obtained. That's a big market for us right now. And we're very excited about it. Uh, we're on most of the ambulances throughout New York City right now. So as COVID started to hit, we were proud to have played a part in keeping those vehicles up longer on the road where they belonged, be able to serve the people in need of getting to the hospital when they were truly in a dire state of being. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for, for helping save lives. Um, so coming back to saving lives and something you mentioned about your dad, you said he was a, a medical pilot for moving cardiac arrest patients and, and other patients from point to point, correct? Yeah. A lot of motorcycle victims for him when he flew medevac back in the day, unfortunately. So Got it. Yeah, I mean, he, heart and lung transplants. Ran, random note. There's a really cool company called Beta Technologies. I'm not sure if you've seen them in the uh, in the urban air mobility space. That's trying to do uh, heart heart and lung transplant, really rapidly moving organs around the, around the uh, around the country. Um, Very cool. What was the name of it? Beta Technologies. I'll, I'll shoot you a link and I'll, we'll put it in the descriptions. I, I thought that was relevant. But looping back over to you, so I was reading a story about you that you actually went into cardiac arrest while you were running a race of some distance, and then you went on and you founded a company based on your experience. I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about that. I always think it's really cool uh, when, when powerful life experiences motivate entrepreneurs to go change the world in some way or another. Absolutely. Well, you've done a good job of getting that from the search results, I would say. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're, you're correct. You did find an article from back in 2014. I had a cardiac arrest and I died for two minutes running the race and uh, two nurses saved my life. And from that experience, um, it was kind of mind, mind opening and expanding, it, it, I guess if you could say that, in the sense that when I had worked at the Pentagon previously, um, I, had, I had trained law enforcement uh, officers in chemical biological warfare and was a law enforcement instructor in general. And when I left that role, I was reflecting and I thought, well, why does it take so long for us in our nation to respond? Uh, when it comes to 911, it's a 10-minute average response time. And even in this building, right, like if we're just in one building, why does it take so long? It should be a couple minutes or something, right? Uh, not, not 10 or more minutes. And so part of that, it, re it results from human dispatch delays is that when you call in a 911, it takes a while for you to explain your situation and there's all these other things that transpire in that process. So if we could automate dispatch, wouldn't that be great that we could get people to show up faster? And my thought was, hell yeah. And so when I created it, it was for uh, originally uh, active shooter because you know, if someone's gonna attack a building, you want people to be able to respond and put that threat down faster. My head was never on the topic of cardiac arrest. And so when I actually endured a cardiac arrest myself running a race, uh, regardless of the factors involved, it was an, an eye-opening moment because I'd already filed for these patents, which just so happened to also cover cardiac arrest and everything else uh, that is way more frequent than a uh, active shooter situation. People, uh, I mean, it's the leading cause of death in the United States. There's people dying all the time. Uh, and, and many of those people because they couldn't get help fast enough to avert their crisis. So when I came out of that situation, it helped me to further pivot the idea in my mind, which was, you know, we've got this platform, this concept, these patents. How do we actually improve that 
So the thought process was if we've got the patents and we've got the platform and regardless of this active shooter situation, um, maybe we can pivot a bit because again, back to the listening and inquiring piece, uh, you know, I'm, I'm listening, I'm hearing that this is a real problem for our nation. So that's when Mayday Alarm was pivoted. Uh, and this is MaydayAlarm.com. It's an app that is very much in an alpha state. It's not available for public consumption. But I did uh, create something that's like Uber for 911. And um, it's essentially waiting for funding because I've put about $100,000 of my own time, money, resources, everything else towards that. And from that, uh, the goal is to deliver a product that can be used to dispatch people more effectively. But the challenge that I keep running into, uh, aside from just the funding to try it out, is a lot of police unions don't want this. Um, they don't want transparency and accountability for their police officers. And so we run into the issues with unions of leadership. I've talked to chiefs. Chiefs say, this is a great idea, but the unions will never support it. So how do we overcome that uh, bureaucracy hurdle as well as also apply more resources towards it? So where I'm at now, I, you know, last year I was in Mass Challenge, and uh, that was a great startup accelerator. It's one of the top five in the nation. Uh, this is, of course, before COVID hit, so it's hard to be in accelerators right now. Not a lot's happening in terms of uh, companies gathering in, in those buildings anymore. But back in, uh, in last year, it was great to have the feedback to help shape the presentations and basically structure everything in order to get this ready to go raise uh, additional round of funding. But again, it goes back to the, the bureaucracy. And that's the number one question I get asked is, well, what about the agencies that are supposed to put this into practice? Uh, the second question I get is, what about the insurance or liability? You know, if the citizen responds, what then? And I'd say my answer to that is there's good Samaritan laws in pretty much every jurisdiction that allow a citizen to respond and render CPR or some additional assistance and help that person if they uh, are afflicted with an injury. So this now, as we look at what's happening with law enforcement in our nation and the politics, um, I don't want to get into that per se because I'm an advocate for law enforcement, but I'm also an advocate for equality. And I believe that people have an equal right to, uh, to fair service. Um, I, think our power, our, our, I think our platform could empower those people to have that equal access and that accountability with law enforcement. So without diving into the weeds, I will say, I do think that the environment is unique right now in the sense that if we think about all the riots that are happening and the public unrest and things like that, it's almost like a catalytic moment for our platform to be a good opportunity right now to be invested in and deployed in areas where there's a lack of trust in the police. And to that, I would say, having worked with police officers and also having been an auxiliary deputy in Macon County, Illinois myself, um, I would say if you're doing the right thing, you have nothing to fear, right? Transparency and accountability should be fine. If you're doing your job in a professional manner, then what do you have to lose, right? If you're doing the right thing, you should be held to a higher standard by the fact that you have a badge on. You should always be upholding the law and you should be treating people professionally with dignity. And so if you're doing those things, you shouldn't have anything to fear if you have a body cam on. Body cams are already deployed for most of the departments out there. So if there's body cams deployed, why can't we keep transparency and accountability going on for the dispatch process? And why can't we have an Uber-like model, one to five stars, how did they do, right? Of course, you don't want the criminal that's getting arrested to, to rate that, they'll probably put a one star every time. But in terms of the people that actually call for help in the community, that are saying, I need some help, will you come and help me? I think you can see a trend if you have a bad apple, if you have a bad officer that's consistently abusing their power or they're consistently having negative encounters with the public, 
then, okay, maybe don't fire that person right off the bat. Let's move them to another place in the department, move them to another precinct if it's a large area. There's other ways to try and mitigate and see, is this a conflict between the person and the environment or is it truly a bad person? Is it a bad apple and they don't deserve to be on the force anymore? So it doesn't mean you have to just race to firing somebody. It's, it's not the race. The race is to see, uh, you know, do they qualify to serving in the position and the place that they are serving in? Because some companies, I'm sure you've worked in the uh, past, right? Where you just work with teams unique, or whatever. You know, very unique perspective. And I would love to hear kind of with all of that said, right the kind of moonshot so for Mayday like Alarm. If, if you officers. did have all the funding places, you had by and from police departments, where, where does that go? What does it look like? And what is what is the non-alpha other places or other schools even, if they're a school officer, they're not going to be the right fit. And you need to move them and put somebody else in that position. So that's not necessarily always a bad reflection on the officer. Now, if you've done that three or four times and you've moved this person, there's still consistently negative reviews and the public doesn't like them. It's probably the officer at that point, right? But I don't think most people sign up to become police officers because they're assholes. That's not the types of people that I've ever met. Um, they, they sign up to become police officers because they have a call to duty. They have a call to service and they want to help their fellow citizen. That's majority of the time why people become police officers. So I think when we try to honor that intent and give them a way to measure that and hold them accountable for their behavior, then it's a positive impact later on. That's my opinion. Individual peoples, individual people or, okay. Yeah, so I think at this yeah. point, I'm starting to evaluate in the context well, let, let's of keep it on the CPR on note. TV and elsewhere in the media with all this unrest. Um, policing, when you look at a constitutional perspective and you look historically, mm -hmm. like back when the constitutional framers created the concept of policing, policing was done by our fellow citizens. Like that's how our nation was founded. There were no badges, right? There were no police officers. Everybody was the police officer and we policed our neighbors. So if there is a way to return that power to the people, and ensure mm -hmm. that they can police themselves. Like Huge that problem, to me yeah. is in line with our constitutional values. And then the police officers should get on board also. So do we need the department buy-in? That's my original perspective is yes, it has to be with department buy-in. Mm -hmm. My perspective now with as much civil unrest yeah, as we're CPR is super non-aggressive. I don't think we need that department buy-in. I think if you empower people and you allow them to be ranked again, right? It's that transparency and accountability. If they are ranked to rendering effective service and aid and Individual people, absolutely, connecting them with each other. And I'm not trying to incite militia behavior here, but I'm, I'm certainly saying like if you have an issue, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So let's say you're on a farm in a rural area, right? And you fall off your tractor and you break your hip or something's about to bleed out and your wearable, which our patent covers, uh, detects a fall and you don't respond, it can automatically call for help within a handful of seconds. Your neighbor or somebody driving by might be three minutes away, whereas in our rural county in Illinois, that ambulance could legitimately be up to 45 minutes to an hour away. And, that, and you might be dead by them, right? So if we, can have a, yeah, if we can have a platform where we're crowdsourcing that kind of activity to protect lives, right? It's about protection. This is not an aggressive thing. I'm not trying to start uh, a militia concept here. Mm -hmm. But if we're about showing up to protect our fellow humans and also even to protect a business if somebody's mm -hmm. like, or house or whatever it is, somebody's getting broken into and your neighbors could show up. I had someone come up to me when I first presented this idea that was, that was a foreign national. And he said, you know, this would be amazing in Colombia. 
um, I think it was Colombia, it was one of the South American countries. He said, in my home country, uh, it's very sad because the government is giving weapons to the, um, to the criminals, basically, to the cartels or whatever. The government's empowering them with the firearms and the means to control the population. And people, as a result, are getting raped and they're getting attacked and all these things are happening. But imagine if you had 20 or 30 villagers show up against uh, one or two military-related, uh, you know, uh, we call it the, uh, the cartel people, um, and somebody's about to get raped and she hits a button on her wristwatch and now 20 villagers show up. I can almost guarantee that that will stop, right? Because now it's not in isolation. You have the power of the crowd to defend other people. So this isn't just an American problem. It's, it's worldwide. If we can make the access to security, to law enforcement, to public safety, transparent and accountable and accessible to all people, it's transformative for stability across the world. It's empowering neighbors to help neighbors. And that doesn't require you to consider the form of government at that point. Neighbors always help neighbors. People that are in the neighborhoods, no matter where you are in the world, neighbors help neighbors. It's a human trait to help your neighbor. And so if we can help neighbors help neighbors, essentially what we're doing, um, that's going to be beautiful. Because if you look at like Iraq, for example, if you had a Sunni versus Shiite population that are uh, headbutting at times, let's say you have a Sunni police chief and a Shiite citizen calling for, for uh, help, and they call the 911 equivalent. And the Sunni police chief says, oh, I'm so sorry that we never showed up three days ago. We never got your call. And that's why nobody ever came to serve you. Whereas now we're like, hey, we'll give you $50 million of USAID funding. But the only way in hell we're going to do that is if you guarantee that your public safety services will be transparent and accountable on some sort of blockchain 911 ledger, let's call it, through our platform, and we are allowed to automatically dispatch those services. So now you can't be like, oh, I didn't get your phone call. Now it's clearly indicated that your device received the call at this time, whatever, and it's a publicly transparent, accessible, accountable ledger for what happens with the 911 call. Like that to me is sort of the next generation of empowering people. You can't have governments hide it. You can't uh, you know, take a paper complaint and stick it in a drawer and it never sees the light of day. In my opinion, if somebody is going to serve the public and they're going to put a badge on and they're going to claim that they are the higher, better power to make decisions on the streets of wherever, then those people should be held accountable. And they should be held accountable to a higher standard than the general public. And those people should be respected. It's absolutely about respect. But this tool should give them a way to track that respect. Are they respecting the people that they're serving? And if they are, then respect should be merited in return and vice versa. So everybody that operates on Uber, you see this. People comment on Uber and Lyft. Oh, wow, it's so much better experience than taxi cabs. I've been there in New York and D.C. where I get garbage service. And those drivers aren't allowed on the platform because they get low reviews. If you don't have a customer service mentality, if you're treating people poorly, bye. You don't deserve to be on the platform. And that's how we should hold our public safety services uh, in that higher light and expectation in terms of accountability and transparency. I love that too. Um, and, and then we can start wrapping up. I love that too, because it empowers, um, it empowers people to get the training they need to get the life-saving CPR skills, the life-saving. Um, I've been currently, I've been looking to take a stop the bleed course and I can't find one. And, um, you know, if this was a more prevalent thing and more people were kind of gamified into, Hey, I want to be a public servant. I can do it with an app. I just got to get a little training and a certification. I think that would be an excellent resource, especially for, for, you know, our listeners, type A, entrepreneur, industrialist types who love building things. Have you heard of the Readiness Collective? I have not, no. 
So this is a really cool concept. And there's a gentleman named Jesse Levin who also serves on Defense Entrepreneurs, uh, sorry, J Defense Entrepreneur Forums Board, DEF, D-E-F, and Defense Innovation Network, DEN, is now partnered with DEF. Uh, DEF is all about culture change and transformation. Jesse Levin uh, went to Babson College, same place that I went, and Jesse created a group called Tactivate. It's the intersection of special operations and entrepreneurship. And Jesse also works with Team Rubicon, where they deploy military veterans to uh, war-torn, conflicted, or disaster-ridden areas. One great example was they took a helicopter with communications equipment down to Puerto Rico, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, and there was a hurricane. And they reestablished payments, which sounds like this simple thing, why would you do that, and why would that be your first response? Well, the local community, a lot of the people in Puerto Rico were on government payment cards, and so they couldn't get access to their funds to buy food, to buy water, anything like that. And so by turning on the communications so that they can make transactions, then the local population was able to do business with each other and entrepreneurship helped restabilize that area. So Jesse is now building something called the Readiness Collective. And in the uh, early part of 2020, there was a shopping mall that was going to open. It was the newest shopping mall to open in America, in Connecticut, and then COVID hit. And so they said to Jesse, how can we drive traffic here? And with his background, he said, tell you what, we're going to repurpose space that's unused where there's nobody going in in stores. We're going to turn it into the readiness collective. Our target's going to be moms and kids. And in looking at moms and kids, we're going to teach them as a priority. And of course, then the husbands and everybody else will follow, but we're going to teach them how to do first aid. We're going to teach them how to set up a mesh network for communications. We're going to teach them what they need to put in their vehicle. So if they get stranded on the side of the highway, they know how to respond. All these things, like you mentioned, Hey, I don't know how to how to do this. I need to stop the bleed course. Oh, they're doing that. And they're making it almost as fun as like when you're a kid, if you ever went to Boy Scouts or somebody went to Girl Scouts and they get the badges and they get to do different things. It's kind of like bringing that back, but for adults, doing it in a cool setting where there's also a co-working space, where there's also a gym so you can work out, where there's also a daycare. So if you got kids, you can leave them there while you train. But the whole thing is centered around readiness and being prepared and, and making sure that your family is ready in case there's a disaster or somebody gets hurt or that is. So I think that's a really uh, cool thing to consider. And their success path is very simple. You go from confused to capable. That's the readiness collective. You go from confused to being conscious, aware that, the, uh, that there's a path and that you can do something. You go into creating that solution. Then you go to collaborating on that solution and then you're capable. And then once you're capable, you can train other people in your neighborhood and you can bring them the same type of knowledge that they deserve to have as well. So it ends up building this network with these readiness pods, if you will, throughout America is the goal. And I think that all of our citizens should get back to those roots. Um, our grandparents' generation knew how to take care of themselves back in the day. And our generation really lacks those basic skills. We're stuck inside. We expect our food to show up on a delivery truck. And we have no sense of what it means to go and plant you know, a garden. And, and uh, in a time of there's, there's no food in the supermarket, what do you do? Well, we should train our people to do that because that wasn't something that, you know, that wasn't a state of being a hundred years ago. Everybody knew how to do that stuff a hundred years ago. Exactly. And that relates very well to the defense innovation network um, and defense innovation projects that you're working on. Um, so with that, I think that we, we will wrap up. Prescott, thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining today. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Where can people find you? Uh, I'll leave it off to you to, to wrap up. Right on. Thank you. Well, um, if you're a small business looking to grow, looking to innovate, 
then we'd be glad to help you with Defense Innovation Network. You can check us out, defenseinnovation.net. My email is prescott with two T's, P-R-E-S-C-O-T-T at defenseinnovation.net. And of course, if you're interested in uh, material science and you'd like to see what we're doing for at-risk metals and other things like polymers and uh, just you want to experiment, then come check us out at 300 Below. That's 300below.com. Uh, and of course, if you're interested in readiness, getting first aid training, go check out the Readiness Collective with Jesse Levin. Um, and if you are interested in uh, collaborating with me on Mayday Alarm and how we can put that into our communities, you can also reach out to me at the same Defense Innovation Network address and we'll have a conversation. So thanks so much for your time, Max. It's been awesome to chat with you. And uh, to all of you readers out there, stay prepared, listen, and uh, try to find other ways that you can pivot yourselves to benefiting our nation and our war fighters. We salute you and we appreciate all that for America and Thank you very much, much, Prescott. And I don't think I've said it yet. Thank you for your service. All right, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. That's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe.